We are now in the home stretch. Now, there are three key words, you remember, for the book of Hebrews. And the first word, they all begin with the letter C. The first word is Christ, because the book of Hebrews is about Christ and how Christ is so much better. He is the mediator of the, the new covenant. And uh, praise the Lord for what uh, our Lord Jesus did for us. And we, we just don't know enough about what the Lord did for us and continues to do for us. And that should be the supreme object of our study is our Savior. The uh, three words, Christ, the second one was covenants and S on the end there. There are how many? Two, right? The old and the new. <clears throat> we studied that. And could a person really get saved under the old covenant? What do you think? Yes, absolutely. Can a person really get saved under the new covenant? Most definitely. Because salvation has always been by grace through faith. That never changed. And then the third word, beginning with the letter C, is commitment, right? And as we go through the book of Hebrews, we see that we need to make a commitment to Christ. Not just once for all, but daily we need to commit our hearts to him. And I'm really excited because now we start tonight, chapter 12. And uh, we could call it the beginning of the end. <laughs> we begin to set our sights on the final thrust of the book. And so uh, with all that in mind, let's have a word of prayer. And then we're going to start right in chapter 12, verse 1. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, once again, we give you the praise and honor and glory for all these uh, many, many months that we've been studying this book. Truly, it's uh, a Mount Everest of the Bible. And uh, we have learned so much about uh, the Old Testament, about what Jesus did, the differences between the Old and New Covenant, and so many, many, many other things. And chapter 11, wow, that was so good. Our Father, we thank you now that we've come this far. And uh, Lord, we need your grace to carry us all the way to the finish line till we get through to the end of chapter 13. Lord, we pray that you'd instruct our hearts tonight. Help us to grow in our faith, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And truly, we will speak the word of God tonight. And so please help us, protect us, bless us, and prepare us for prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, uh, chapter 12 and verse 1 begins with that famous word, what is it? Wherefore. And I'm sure you've heard it preached, and actually years ago I used to say it once in a while myself, that wherever you see the word therefore or wherefore, you're to look to see what it's there for. And a cute little phrase, a little play on words almost, but it doesn't really cut it. It doesn't really describe um, the word therefore is uh, referring to a logical conclusion to uh, an argument, uh, whereas uh, wherefore, the difference between therefore and wherefore, wherefore means a consequence. And now usually you'll find that it's a kind of a negative consequence, but not always. Sometimes it's a positive consequence, as in the case here tonight. We have a positive consequence that we're going to see. Um, so chapter 12, verse 1, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Seeing we also. Paul is talking to his New Testament Jewish audience. They were uh, basically 
a mixture of saved and unsaved Jews, and he was trying to uh, convince them to cling to Jesus and not, not go back into Judaism. You remember, no one's going to lose their salvation. Uh, the Lord keeps us saved, but uh, not every believer is walking hand in hand with the Lord. And oftentimes a, back, uh, um, a Christian will backslide away from God, and then the Lord has to go after that one and bring them back. And, uh, you know, boy, it uh, must be a full-time job for our Lord Jesus with uh, Christians all over the world in various conditions of spirituality and some hot and some cold and some lukewarm. And he's running all around, I'm sure, trying to, you know, get us going the way we should. And so uh, we also, Paul is talking here uh, about New Testament believers as opposed to the Old Testament believers. He just finished chapter 11. And in chapter 11, he was talking all about the Old Testament believers and all the great things they did by faith. Um, Abraham and uh, Moses and uh, David and so on, all these great ones that he mentioned, some of them in more depth than others. But then he says now in chapter 12, we also, he says, are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, surely uh, chapter 11 is a great cloud of witnesses. No doubt about it. You want your faith to be strengthened. You ought to take time and read through chapter 11 again and read the lives of these men and women who by faith did all these wonderful things. And a lot of the times it was done in the face of opposition. And you'll find that true. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Perse what? Persecution. That's right. Now you say, oh, persecution. Oh, I don't like that. I want that. I, I, I want the blessings. I don't want to be persecuted. You don't understand the nature of persecution then. Persecution helps to get our eyes off the world. You see, when, when we get too set and comfy in the world, boy, you know, our dislike and hate for persecution really, really rises. But when we we realize that this world is not our home. This world is not our friend. The world is at enmity with God. That's what John teaches. The word enmity means to be an enemy. How about that? You want to be an, a friend of God's enemy? Well, then you just have to snuggle up to the world. But if we uh, realize that this world is not our home, heaven is our home, we are just strangers in this world, then you see persecution isn't that bad. Persecution has a lot of benefits. And uh, these can only be realized as we draw close to the Lord. If you're drifting away from God, you're going to have all these phobias about uh, persecution and people looking at you sideways. And, oh, I don't think I could stand that. Uh, you need to get in closer to the Lord. Really, the persecution won't, won't bother you as much. Um, I suppose it's human nature to shy away from anything unpleasant. But the uh, truth of the matter is, the Lord said to us, take up thy cross and follow me. Those were the Lord's words to us. And uh, Paul talked about dying daily. He talked about being crucified with Christ. Um, in uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, he talked about um, uh, this, this kind of thing, giving our bodies over to God. And this is the proper mindset for the Christian. Our minds don't belong in this world. Our minds do not belong in the trash of the world, the treasure of the world, or anything else that has to do with the world. This world is not our home. And I've told you the uh, illustration before. I'd like to tell it again because I really like the illustration. Back in the late 1800s in the city of London, 
a uh, Salvation Army gal was trying to witness Christ to a prostitute in the streets of London. And she became the girl's friend and tried to tell her about Jesus. And this one particular time, she went right into the whorehouse where the prostitute lived to try to win her to Jesus Christ. And while the Salvation Army girl was in the whorehouse, the medical authorities came and they sealed the house. They boarded it up. They quarantined the house because of disease. No one was allowed in and no one was allowed out. And here's this Salvation Army girl now trapped inside the whorehouse. And the point being, the Salvation Army girl was in the whorehouse, but she was not of the whorehouse. Do you see the difference? And you and I are a little bit like that Salvation Army girl. We're a little bit trapped in a filthy world. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. So Paul now is beginning to set his sights here in Hebrews chapter 12. He's beginning to set his sights on the end of this, this book that he's writing. Wherefore, we all seeing, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And I think that, um, as I mentioned, chapter 11 with the Old Testament cloud of witnesses is very true. But I think that this is present tense. What Paul is saying is that seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. I believe he's referring to the great Christians of the New Testament who were living their lives by faith, even as he wrote the book of Hebrews. And so I'd like to suggest to you that maybe he had the apostle Peter in mind and uh, Peter's exploits and what he had to do for God and how he had to endure certain things and how he was an overcomer. And according to the apostle John, he was more than an overcomer through Christ. Maybe uh, uh, Paul thought of uh, James, the apostle James, and the great pillar of strength that he was. Uh, maybe he thought of John, the apostle John, perhaps Stephen, the first deacon there, and all what he did by faith. Then there was Barnabas, a close, close friend of the apostle Paul. There was Paul himself. There's Luke, the beloved physician. There was Trophimus, and the list goes on. The New Testament contains a cloud of witnesses, but it doesn't stop there. Down through the years, every Christian in every generation, there's a cloud of witnesses. All through the, uh, uh, the, the early hundreds, uh, centuries there of the first millennium, uh, there were uh, Christian witnesses. And then into uh, the 1100s and 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, we have all the persecution by the Roman Catholic Church and so many Christian men and women just like us, people just like us, who refused to bow to Rome and kowtow to the Roman Catholic Church and they were arrested and they were tortured. The Catholic Church had such power that they could arrest people or have them arrested and they were brought into dark prisons and they were put on the rack and they were burned with hot irons and they, they suffered all kinds of things and uh, they did it for their love for the Lord Jesus. They would not kiss the Pope's big toe. They would not um, bow down to uh, Mary or any of the other idols. They wouldn't uh, obey the uh, teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. They believed that they had a conscience that was answerable to God. And uh, they believed in uh, salvation through Jesus Christ only. They believed that the word of God was given from God to men, not to the church, to be kept and hoarded up. And so uh, 
in the eyes of the Catholic Church and the governments that the Catholic Church controlled in those days, they were in hot water. They really were, and sometimes literally. But the cloud of witnesses continued on down through the centuries, and even today, in 2018, all around the world, there are men and women continuing to do great things for God by faith. This is the cloud of witnesses. And so you look at it again there. Wherefore, seeing we also... Folks, that's us here. This is applicable to you and to me here at Grace Baptist Church uh, in 2018. We, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. He says, let us lay aside every weight. Now, those of you who know anything about running, uh, you know that a runner needs to set aside weights. Now, when they're training, they can strap weights to their ankles or to their body and that helps them to develop their muscles. But when the race comes, when it's time to run, all these weights come off them. Um, my favorite sport when I was a teenager was table tennis, and I liked that sport. I was never really good at it, but I really liked it. And so now I'm really bad at it. I, can, I, I found my old racket, by the way, I, I had this thing, I, I made this, it was back in 1973, I think it was, or 72, and I spent, I think it must have been a fortune, it was a fortune of money. In 1972, I think it was $30, something like that. Huge fortune of money on a ping pong racket. And so uh, I kept it, right, down through the years, and I found it just a few years ago in my zipper case, and I opened it up, and it crumbled. <laughs> it actually crumbled on me. So uh, something else that I bought back then, uh, playing table tennis, you don't want to have big, heavy running shoes because you're supposed to be very light and nimble on your feet. And so the uh, running shoe of choice was this feather-light little thing that you put on your feet and a couple of laces, and it's, it's really light. It almost feels like you're in bare feet. And I bought a pair of those. Again, I think for the outrageous sum of about $19, I think it was, something like that. And they were very, very light on the feet. And so runners, they uh, want to wear just the bare minimal of clothing and they want to have the lightest running shoes possible. They don't want to carry, you know, a big backpack on them because they're going to lose the race. Runners know something about laying aside every weight. And so the runners, what they do is they lay aside every needless weight uh, in order to be able to win the race. Now, when it says here, let us lay aside every weight, I don't believe that the word weight is referring to sins. I don't think that that is what Paul was getting at. But rather, I think what he was referring to are things that hold us back. Things that hold us back. Now, an example is my table tennis. Before I was a Christian, uh, when I was a teenager, I'd play the game and uh, boy, I'd get vehemently mad. Uh, I had an incredible temper back then. And uh, it would just bang, go off, you know, when I'd lose a point And oh, I'd be so mad. And, uh, uh, you know, steam or smoke out of my nostrils or something. Then I got saved. And then I tried playing table tennis. And that old nature, it, it came out. And here I am now playing against Christians on the other side of the table. And they're looking at what kind of demon is standing, you know, in those uh, lightweight running shoes holding that $30 t 
table tennis racket. You know, what kind of a weirdo I was because it was only a game and it was only a point. Not to me, it was life or death. And I say that to say this, it didn't take me long to realize that I could not play table tennis without giving into the anger. And so what I had to do, sadly, my most favorite sport in the whole world, I had to walk away from it. I had to lay it aside. And I laid it aside for a good number of years. I think it must have been 10 years, something like that. But when I went back to it and I tried it again, by then I had victory over the anger. And I didn't get angry anymore and I could enjoy it as just a game. But for those years, it was a weight that was holding me back and dragging me down. And there's no way that I could progress as a Christian uh, when I sort of didn't have control over these emotions. And so when Paul says to us, let us lay aside every weight, I think he's referring to things that, to, uh, uh, things that would drag us down in our pursuit of the perfect will of God. Now, I'd like you to keep your finger there in Romans, I'm uh, sorry, in, in Hebrews and go to Romans chapter 12. I think that it's no mistake, but uh, there's an incredible um, parallel to, um, between Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 and Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's read out these first two verses together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's begin. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so here we see that um, there's a parallel there as we read uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 particularly, and Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. There seems to be an appeal to us to sort of lay things aside and to pursue the will of God. Anything that's holding you back from pursuing the will of God is like a weight, a dead weight, and you need to get rid of that. Have you ever heard of the man named William Lear, L-E-A-R? I'm not talking about King Lear in Shakespeare. I'm talking about a contemporary man. I think he died back in the 70s or 80s, but his name was William Lear, and he invented the Lear Jet. How many have heard of the Lear Jet? Okay, a few of us. Well, he was a, a famous engineer. And at one point in designing his Lear jet, the idea was to get rid of as much weight as possible in order to make the jet faster and more efficient. And they were very famous, the Lear jets. They were a hot item and a real, a real commodity to be had by all of the jet setters. You know, these were fabulous jets. And so he, um, he did everything he could possibly do to get rid of weight off of his jets. And at one point, you know, talking with his staff, he said to his staff, I would sell my grandmother if I could save a few more pounds off the jet. Now that might have been a kind of a nasty thing to say, but his staff, the people that worked for him, started... They picked up on that and they started referring to weight as grandmothers. 
And they'd come into the staff meeting. I think we could save two or three grandmothers here. It, it turned out to be something a little bit humorous. But the Learjet became famous for its light weight. And anything that holds you and I back from performing the full will of God is a weight that needs to be gotten rid of. Now maybe you might have to, maybe you could pick up something later on, but maybe for now, certain things are holding you back. Possibly you watch too much TV. Possibly you watch too much internet. Possibly you read too many uh, fiction books or something like that. Possibly you dawdle away too many hours out in the, the fishing pond or something. Whatever it might be that's holding you back. Hey, is there anything wrong with fishing? No, nothing wrong with golf. Nothing wrong with uh, reading uh, or, um, you know, watching a, a movie, I suppose. But uh, if it's holding you back, dragging you down, holding you back, then it falls under this classification here and it's a weight and you need to do something about it. So he says, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning there's Christian men and women, even in our day, that are doing great things for God. These are witnesses witnesses to us, encouraging us and challenging us to come up a little higher in our Christian life. Let us lay aside every weight. Now, he says, and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Um, there are uh, many varied ideas as to what that could be. What was Paul referring to when he said the sin which doth so easily beset us? Some people call this a besetting sin. Now, the word besetting is not found in your Bible. It's applied to this verse here. But uh, someone might say, oh, I have a besetting sin. Uh, you know, usually the sin you hate the most is the one you commit the most. If you have a bad temper, for example, and you can't seem to get control over it, well, that's going to be the sin you hate the most. You see? And so um, people talk about their besetting sins and they say, well, you know, I, I need to lay aside this sin which doth so easily beset me. See, a besetting sin. Uh, however, I'd like to suggest to you that that's not what Paul's talking about. I don't think that Paul is talking so much about, uh, you know, what sin is for this man, a different one for this man, for this lady, it's a different sin. For that lady over there, it's a different sin. We all got these different sins, you see. I don't think that Paul is talking about all these different sins. It's true that all of us struggle with different things. That's very true. But there is one sin I think he had in mind. One very common sin that weaves its way through every pew, through the pulpit, and it, it touches all of us. Now, what is the context of chapter 11 in one word? What is it? Faith. We are right now on the heels of that context. And I think that this is what Paul is referring to. Lack of faith. Lack of faith. You say, what does that mean? It means God says it and we don't believe it. God says to do this and we don't because we don't believe it or we don't want to believe it. And how can we possibly live our lives for the Lord unless we use faith? For without faith, it is what? Impossible to please him. It's impossible. You cannot, I cannot please God unless I use faith. Now, that's, faith means trust in what God has written. That is proper biblical faith. 
Faith doesn't mean trust in what I want to do. Well, I think that our church should have a Rolls Royce. And by faith, we're going to buy that Rolls Royce. Oh, wait a minute here, Pastor. Uh, are you sure? I mean, that's a lot of money. How much are those things anyhow? Well, it doesn't matter. The point is that uh, it would make quite an impression and the city would smarten up and they'd sit up and they'd take notice that God is in this place because we have a Rolls Royce. Now, that's kind of a stupid example, but it is an example of stupidity. It's not an example of the will of the Lord. God doesn't need a Rolls Royce. I don't see anywhere in scripture where God would have us to buy a golden chariot or something in order to try and win the city to Christ. I don't see that. But uh, yet there are a lot of, quote, uh, faith preachers who think that they need a Rolls Royce and they need, you know, a $50 million jet to fly around and things like that. There are guys like that in the world, you know that. Faith is not what I want to do. Now, God, please bless it. This is the girl I want to marry. God, please tell her. <laughs> this is the job I want to have. God, please open the door. Give me favor in there. See, that's not faith. That might be stupidity. Faith is where we find out what God wants. And it's always based upon what God has written. Now we put our trust in what God has written. Salvation is a perfect example of that. Try and get saved by any other means but through Jesus Christ. And it's impossible. It can't happen. God won't bless it. Oh, but God, I promise you that if you'll take me to heaven, I promise you I'll get baptized every day of my life. God says, no. All right, I promise you that if you'll take me to heaven, I will give offerings every Sunday. Every Sunday, morning and evening. How about that, Lord? If you'll take me to heaven. Nope. Those are man's ways, not God's ways. Salvation is when God himself came to earth. His name was Jesus and died on the cross for our sins, was dead, buried, and rose again the third day. Then we, realizing that we're undone by sin and we're on our way, a crash course, well, unless we can somehow get saved, we turn and we beg for his pity and his mercy and his, his grace. Please save me. I can't save myself. I repent of my sins Lord, I, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. Come in my heart. Save me from going to hell, Lord. I don't want, to, don't want to be separated from you. Something like that. And when we pray something like that, then God hears because that's his will. He is not willing that any should perish. And then he forgives. Christ comes in the heart and we get saved. It, but you see, it's his will based on his word. And so that's what faith is. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith in his will. And so the context in chapter 11 is all about faith. And so um, that's uh, what we appear to have before us here is uh, the sin which doth so easily beset us is the lack of faith. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that prayer is so close with faith that it really can't be separated you cannot really separate faith and prayer because prayer and conversation with God and asking him to fulfill his will through you, that's kind of locked with faith. Whenever you find God's will and you put faith in that, you are automatically praying. And uh, prayer is so linked with it. You see, that's probably a good indicator right there as to how your faith is doing, is how is your prayer doing? Now, if your prayer consists of uh, 
uh, breakfast, lunch, and supper. Uh, Lord, thank you for the food. Amen. And that's about how much you pray that I can guarantee your faith is very small. If that, uh, when you start crying out to God throughout the morning and in the afternoon, start sharing with God your thoughts and your heart. And then in the evening, then I can pretty much guarantee your faith is quite a bit stronger. It's growing quite a bit. These two seem to be inseparable. Well, how, how do I know how, you know how good my faith is doing? Look at your prayer life. Look at your prayer life. If you're spending a good portion of your, your, your day in prayer, then you're going to have a very strong faith. And this is the sin which doth so easily beset us. It's, I think it's the sin of, of, of lack of faith connected with, with prayerlessness. Now we have a verse, you needn't turn there, but it's in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, and I believe it applies to us. It was Samuel who said these words, but he said, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Now, those words came out of Samuel's lips, and I know that he was the judge, he was the leader of Israel, but I'm telling you, he was an example for other believers. There is such a thing as the sin of prayerlessness. Sometimes we just think that sin is when you do all these bad things. Not so, that's only half of it. The other half is when we don't do what we're supposed to do. And so when you're a kid, mom or dad tells you, um, go in there and clean up your room, and you don't do it. You see, that's wrong, isn't it? Isn't it? Or is it? Does it count? You throw a stone through a window, that's something you've done. Oh, that's bad. But your mother tells you to clean up your room or finish your homework, and you don't do it, well, that's bad too, you see? And there's such a thing as the sin of prayerlessness. Yeah, there's a sin of Bible reading less. <laughs> that's not even a word. There's a sin of not reading your Bible. And there's a sin of prayerlessness. And that's what comes out in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Um, so anyhow, he says, um, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us then he says, and let us run with patience the race that is beset before us. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with the second phrase first. Uh, the race that is set before us. I'm going to talk about that first before I talk about let us run with patience. Because uh, I think we need to deal with this idea of a race. The word race means a rush or to run. That's what the word means. That's the meaning of the word, okay? A race. So apparently every Christian has a race. Let's look at it again. Wherefore, seeing we also, it's all the Christians, all the believers. What does that include all of the female believers? It includes all the female believers. Does that include all of the older men believers? Yes, it includes all the older male believers. What about the young people believers? Does it include them? It includes every born again man, woman, and young person. Everyone who's born again seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses and the, let us lay aside every weight, all Christians listening, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, again, all Christians tuning in. Now he talks about a race. So apparently every one of us has a race that is set in front of us. Now our race is different from the world's race. I want you to know that right off the bat. The world has a race too. And uh, every 
Christian has a race. Now, the world has actually a few races. Number one, they have a race to get rich. Isn't that right? Aren't they doing that all the time? They're racing to get to the uh, lotto table and put down their money and buy their lotto tickets. They're racing to get to the, to the casino. They're racing to get to the golf course. Or they're racing to get onto a vacation. They're racing to retire. How about that? They're racing to get married. They're racing to get, um, uh, get through the week just so they can get to Saturday and get to the weekend. They're racing for the weekend. They're racing to get drunk or to get high. And these are just some of the world's races. But God has given his children a different kind of race. We do have a race. It's not to get rich. It's a race not to retire. It's a race not to get married or any of the other things above. I guess we should properly honestly say that except for the gambling and the alcohol and drugs, the list above, you know, of retiring or going on vacation. There's nothing per se wrong with these things as long as they fit into the will of God. But God has given his children a different kind of race. And um, I believe that uh, the race, we saw some of it in Romans chapter 12 about giving our bodies to God and pursuing to know the will of God. That's all part of the race. And so the race for us Christians is a little bit different. Well, it's quite a bit different from the world, but it's a little bit different from each of us because it involves now the will of God. Would you say that the will of God for my life, Pastor Steve White, that the will of God for my life is exactly 100% the same as for your life? No, I wouldn't. God's called me a little differently, hasn't he? Does that mean he's not called me to holiness? Yes or no? Yes, he's called me to holiness. Has he called you to holiness? Yes, he has. You see, has he called me to let my light shine as a Christian? Has he called you to let your light shine as a Christian? Yes. Has he called me to go work at the factory from nine to five? No. He's called me to be here. And uh, this is, this is my, my workplace, you know, my job as a pastor. And uh, he's called you slightly different. You see, there's a lot of similarities, but there's some differences in there. Now, that's important for us to keep that in mind. Our race is actually described a little bit better in the book of Philippians. So keep your finger in Hebrews and go back to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 11. So the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now we don't have time to go into all of the details of uh, the context here, but he's really talking about, you know, when he opens his eyes in glory. And what kind of glory will it be? When he says attain unto the resurrection of the dead, he's not saying, boy, I hope I'm get, you know, I'm, I really hope I make it. I, you know, I'm not sure, but I really, really hope that I, end up in heaven, you know. That's not, not what he's saying at all. He knows that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He knows that. But what he's talking about is what kind of resurrection, what kind of glory will be waiting for him after. 
Will it be as rich as it could be, or will it be poor? And so in verse 12, he says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. And so he's got some kind of race going on here. Verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that there's something in Jesus, this prize, this high calling, it's in Jesus, and he is pressing with all his might. He is in a race. And just to make a long story short, the race is to finish the will of God before he dies. God has a whole bunch of things that he has for every one of us to do and accomplish and to experience. Some of us, you know, we get kind of worldly minded and we think, oh, I hope before the rapture comes, I hope I can get married. And then you get married and then you change. You say, oh, I hope before the rapture comes, I'll have a child. And so then you have a child, right? And that changes. Oh, I hope. <laughs> and some people will say, I can buy my first home, you know, or I can make it to this or that over there. And we're kind of crazy that way because that's kind of how the world goes about it. Paul was never caught up into that kind of thinking. He was thinking, I got one life to live. I don't know how much time I have left but I know that I'm not perfect yet. I haven't perfected all the will of God in my life. I haven't done everything God wants me to do, but I'm pressing. I'm laying aside every weight uh, and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And I think that it can beset any Christian is a lack of faith. And we'll touch more on that in a minute here, but let's go back to chapter 12. So uh, he says, uh, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Now, let's look at the next phrase. And let us run with patience. So apparently, not only do every one of us have a race that's set in front of us, a race to run, but apparently, we're to run with patience. So we're to be runners in this race. It's a running race is what it is. And uh, when he says patience, um, how many know what the 50-yard dash is? Four people? Come on now. Play with me tonight here. How many can think they can figure out what is a 50-yard dash or 50-meter dash? Okay, how about that? A 50-meter dash. What, what do you think it means? A bunch of people line up. The finish line is how far away? 50 yards away. Okay. Uh, let me see, uh, it would be 70, 50, 150 feet, right? Is that right? Three feet in a meter, three feet in a yard? Three times 50, 150 feet? Okay, so that's the finish line, 150 feet. Do you think you have to exercise patience in this race? 150 feet. When that starting pistol goes, do you think all of the runners are going to start going slow? Now, I've got to pace myself. I mean, it's, it's 150 feet. What do you think they're going to do? Huh? Fast as they can. Because they got plenty of energy even left over. 
after they do 150 feet. 150 feet you know, from here to you know, down there. It's, it's not very far. And so when that starting pistol goes, they explode out of the gate. They push off and they're straining every fiber and they're giving it all they got because it's only 150 feet away. You don't exercise patience for a race like that. Now, let me tell you about another race. This one's not 50 yards or 50 meters. This is 26 miles. A 26-mile race. What do we call that? A marathon. How many have heard of the marathon? Raise your hand. Okay, well, you better have heard of that. That one, yeah. It's very important that we realize something here. When Paul says, run the race with patience, he's talking about the 26-mile marathon. He's talking about a, a distance where you are forced to pace yourself. You have to run according to your physical shape. Has anyone here actually run a 26-mile marathon? Anybody? Okay. How about a one-mile? One-miler? One, two, three... Yeah, so, you know, in high school, whatever, you got to run around the track. Is it four times? Is that what it is? Or eight times or something like that, whatever it is. I remember the, in, when I was in high school, the, the guys in my gym class, they were doing the mile, run around the track. I think it was four times. I forget whatever it was, but they were doing it in about five minutes, four minutes, four to five minutes. Me, I did it in 15 minutes. You say, why? Because I exploded out of the gate, left everyone far behind, and then I winded, and I fell down on the grass, my chest heaving, they all passed me. And I got up, and I started to stagger again. I got a pain in my side, and that slowed me down. I took another break. <laughs> Anyhow, the, 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 the gym teacher would not let me quit. He said, White, get up there. <laughs> You're not quitting. You're not quitting until you finish this thing. And I was really just walking about that fast. And 15 minutes, my 15-minute mile. I don't know what that translates to in miles per hour, but it ain't much. Anyhow, that was me. Um, in, a, in a race like a marathon, it's going to last all our lives. Your race that God has set in front of you is not for a week or a month. It's for all your life. You're running. You're not just running for a year, unless that's all the time you have left. You are running for all your life. Now, we've got some of the younger people here, and should the Lord not come back for a long, long time, you may live to be 75, 80. And so you may have uh, 55, 60 years ahead of you. Well, that's how long your race is. You'll be running for 60 years. Then there are some of us that have already been running for, you know, a lot of years, decades and decades. And uh, maybe we don't have too many more decades left to run. But the race lasts all your life. Did you catch that? Because that's important. You have to get a vision of this to know what he's talking about here. So it's, it's not a 50-yard dash at all at all. By the way, the uh, Olympic marathon runners, um, they do the 26-mile marathon in two hours. 
So that means that they are running at 13 miles per hour. In order to get 26 miles in in two hours is 13 miles per hour. Now, if you happen not to be an Olympic Christian, you may have to tone it down a little bit. You may have to run at 10 miles an hour or 16 kilometers an hour, that sort of thing. Stronger Christians can run a little faster. Weaker Christians are forced to run a little slower. But all need patience. Now, please don't say, well, I'm a weaker Christian. So I can run at uh, one mile every 15 minutes, just like the pastor did in high school. I, I'm a weaker Christian, so I ju I'll just kind of lay this one out. No, you won't. Uh, you know, you'll have to answer to God. Just because you may be a little weaker than someone else doesn't mean you can't grow stronger. You may not be able to do much physically, but I can guarantee you can do everything spiritually because God is there to help you. And if you will read your Bible and pray every day, you will grow. You'll get stronger and stronger and stronger. Any Christian here tonight who six months from now, a year from now, has not grown, it's no one else's fault but, but yours. So we all have that responsibility to keep growing, keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. And the more you grow, the better you're going to be at running the race. So that's very important. But anyhow, the point is we all need patience. And something else about running your race is you have to run lawfully according to the rules. Paul said, if any man also uh, strive for masteries, yet he is not crowned except he strive lawfully. Now look at the verse 2. He says, looking unto Jesus. Now, that's something we don't do enough of. To look unto Jesus will cause you to pray. If you are not praying throughout the day, it's because you're not looking unto Jesus. There's a good telltale right there. Well, how do I know how I'm doing with my prayer life? Well, are you looking unto Jesus throughout the day? When you have a, a job to do, a task or something, how about when you drive your car? Are you praying? Lord, keep me safe. Lord, help me get through this intersection. Lord, help me stop properly. Lord, help me to see if there's anything coming my way. Lord, help me to, to get there on time. Lord, help me not to have road rage. Lord, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That's looking unto Jesus. When you're at work and you're doing your work, are you praying, looking unto Jesus for his assistance? Oh, I don't need the Lord's help. I know how to do this. No, that's where you're wrong. That's where you're wrong. You need the Lord's help. Because something's going to come along and it's going to fool you and trick you unless you have the Lord's help to recognize. Oh, wait a minute. That doesn't belong here. And if you had passed it through, you would have been in big trouble. You need the Lord's help. You need to be looking unto the Lord. Listen, I do a lot of work here uh, in sermon preparation and uh, preparing and planning and so on for programs of the church. And I have to look to the Lord. I have to keep praying. Lord, help me to not make a mistake here. Show me what the better ways are. I have to do that, and you would expect that of me. Well, why doesn't the Lord expect that of you? He does. Keep looking unto Jesus. That's not just for pastors. That's for all Christians. You know, we're all to lay aside every weight. We're all to run with patience. We're all to look unto Jesus. Very important. You know, the devil will do his level best to get your eyes off Jesus. You already know that, don't you? The devil's full-time job, it seems, is to get you to stop looking at Jesus throughout the day. Now, what do you think? Has the devil been winning lately? Have you been looking unto Jesus throughout the morning, throughout the afternoon? Or do you forget all about the Lord? If you do, the devil's won. He's won. He's not afraid of you. 
You need to keep the devil on his toes by looking unto Jesus. The devil will try and get your eyes off Jesus and onto the things around you and the world around you. And you must keep your eyes on Jesus if you're going to get to the finish line. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We owe everything to Jesus. He is the author and the finisher. The Lord Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher of our faith. Everything we have is because of him. Now note something. It says he's the finisher. Now that's interesting. There's nothing to fear in life because Jesus knows what tomorrow holds. There's nothing to fear in the race that he set before you and me because, you see, he's been at the finish line. He knows what's involved. The old devil tries to get your eyes off Jesus and onto some of the scary things around us. But uh, remember, you've got a promise of his in chapter 13. Just turn the page, would you? Hebrews chapter 13. Take a look, please, at verse 5. Read it out loud with me. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art... I can't hear you. For thou art... I can't hear you. With me, yeah. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, isn't that a wonderful psalm? Wow. And Hebrews 13, 5, a wonderful promise. And so, go back to chapter 12 here. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. Now, notice it says nothing about rewards. Who for the rewards that was set before him. Now, it says for the joy. Why does it say that? Because the rewards in themselves are not much unless they can give joy. If they can't give joy, what's the sense in the rewards? Now, there are many things that God can give that will bring joy, including fellowship and answer to prayers and blessings and so on. But concerning Jesus, because he's our example, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, watch this, endured the cross. And you know something? The cross needed to be endured. That was, we'll never understand all about the cross, but that was the most horrible thing. It needed to be endured. Look back at Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Let's just do a wee bit of Bible flipping. Just a bit. Matthew chapter 26. And we come to um, the Garden of Gethsemane here. Verse 36. The garden there, Gethsemane. He goes and prays. Verse 38, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Verse 39, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And if you look back in Hebrews, You've got the commentary on that very, very verse, chapter 5 of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, and verse number 7. And this is a verse that we studied many moons ago. Um, chapter 5, verse 7. 
who in the days of his flesh, it's a reference to Jesus Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Wow. And so here he endured the cross. And remember, I, in fact, I mentioned it to you earlier, the words of our Lord, he said, take up thy cross and what? Follow me. Now, the cross is an instrument of what? Death. It's not an instrument of jewelry. It's an instrument of death. When you take up the cross, you carry a death sentence on you. A death sentence. What would you think about taking a, a magic marker, rolling up your sleeve and putting a little X there, meaning you're marked for death. You're living under a death sentence. That's what the cross is all about. It's living under a death sentence. You just don't know when that sentence will be carried out. You are living on death's row. Kind of like an inmate, right? You're on death's row. There's a death sentence over you. Now, listen. If there was a death sentence over you, would you still give a lot of time and trouble about vacations and the toys of the world and getting rich and all that stuff, would you still be pursuing that if you were under a death sentence? Chances are no. If you went to see the doctor and the doctor said, oh, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but you have the worst form of disease known to man. I don't know how much time you have left. You might have a week. You might have a year. Maybe more maybe less. And then you come out of the doctor's office just kind of like that in a daze. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Someone runs up to you and says, hey, we found a great investment in stocks and bonds. Not interested. Not interested. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I need to get my house in order. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I got unsaved loved ones I haven't witnessed to. I got to get on the phone. I got to get on a plane and go visit them before I die. You see your whole mental outlook is different, isn't it? Jesus had to deal with the cross. And so do you and so do I. And this is the proper mentality of the healthy Christian because he or she is looking unto Jesus now, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And you need to endure it as well, as well as I. He says, going back to chapter 12 now, and verse 2, it says here, despising the shame. Now, shame was a big part of the cross. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when the condemned was going to go to the cross, they would first be beaten. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they would beat them and lacerate them with, with uh, whips, pulverize them. And then they would strip them naked. And they would fasten them to the cross with nails and ropes. And they'd, boom, lift it up. And you were set on public display for all the world to see. Beaten, humiliated, condemned, naked, nailed to a cross. And the crowds of people would throw their insults at you. And they would egg you on to make you mad and scream with frenzy. And they would even throw things at you. Eggs, sticks, rocks, 
They'd spit at you. There's nothing you could do. There was tremendous shame involved with the cross. Now that's something that uh, none of us want to get involved with, is the shame. But if you are living under a death sentence, it doesn't matter. If you're marked for death, it doesn't matter. If you're crucified with Christ, you're already dead. I'm not saying that the will of God is going to involve you being beaten, nailed to a cross naked. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm suggesting that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's a cross to bear. This is so important for you and for me. And it says here that Jesus despised the shame. So what does that mean? The word despise means to look down your nose at. And here's the picture. For the joy that was set before him, what was that joy? The joy was pleasing the heavenly father, having done the will of God, even though it cost him his lifeblood. You see, he finished the will of God before he died. And for this joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and the shame, he just looked down his nose at it. It wasn't even worthy of his time. That's what it means. And when your eyes are, are on Jesus and you're consumed with doing the will of God before you die, you won't care about the discomforts of life. You won't care about what some of the things the devil does to you. You won't care if there's shame involved as well. And so he was set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I think this was the small part of the joy because I think that the greatest joy was pleasing the heavenly father. And this should be our definition of joy. That we do those things that are pleasing in his sight, according to 1 John chapter 3. Now, let's conclude and we're done. You and I, we are in a race. Whether we know it or not, we are in a race. God has set a race before you. To chicken out and to run away is not the answer. The race is real and the key is to keep our eyes on Jesus and not give up but to press on. The winner, the winner of the race, listen carefully, the winner of God's race is not the one who finishes first. The winner of God's race is the one who finishes. That's the winner. And you can be a winner. Every one of us can be winners if we will finish our race, our course with joy. If we will not give up on God, if we will do all the will of God before we die, yes, we will finish our race. That's the only way we can finish it. So finishing the race, some Christians think, oh, when I finish my race, that means when I die and I close my eyes in this world and I open my eyes in heaven, that you see, I will have finished my race. I will have come to years, retired, a good old, you know, I'll be 95. And then in the middle of the night while I'm asleep, then I'll quietly pass away. And you see, I will have finished my, my course. I will have finished my race. That's not finishing the race. Finishing the race has nothing to do per se with the death. That is not what God means. To finish your race, die. If that were the case, let's all just die and be done with it. If that's what finishing the race means, let's just kill ourselves and be done. 
That's not what God's talking about. When you finish your race, when you die, he's not talking about that. Your race means to finish the will of God before you die. That's why Jesus on the cross, right before he died, said three important words. What were those words? It is finished. That's what our goal is. Before we die, to be able to completely finish the will of God for your life, for my life. That is what the race is all about. And we can't do it unless we keep our eyes on Jesus. We're going to die halfway through, figuratively speaking. We're going to quit. We're going to lay down. We're going to... You know, we're going to not pace ourselves. We're, we're going to get involved with things of the world. We're going we're to quit on God. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to stop going to church. We're going to stop reading our Bible. We're going to stop doing all the things that we know God wants us to do. Well, I know a Christian, and uh, they used to. Uh, now where are they? They haven't been to church in 10 years. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Very sad. And uh, that kind of thing happens. In the New Testament, Paul wrote of Demas. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so that kind of thing happens. Will you finish your race that Jesus has given you? Will the rapture come and find you only halfway finished your race? Remember that Jesus wants to be able to say to you and to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches in Asia. And each one of them, every one of them, he talked about overcoming obstacles. Why did he do that? Because the devil does his best to knock us out of the race. Paul wrote Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. He said, ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? In a race, sometimes, you know, the guys are all running and one of them purposely will step in front of another runner and give him a bit of a hip check and knock him flying off the course. That's what the word hinder means. Who did hinder you? You used to be closer to God. You used to serve God. Now look, what happened? Who knocked you out of the race? Who did hinder you? I'd like to encourage every Christian in our church to pray earnestly about the race that you're in. Can I ask, are you doing everything the Lord is wanting you to do? Are you serving God in a ministry? Are you faithfully attending all the services you can? Are you tithing and giving to faith promise to support missions? Are you reading your Bible every day? Are you praying earnestly? Are you letting your light shine? Whew. That's a tall order, isn't it? It's a full-time job is what it is, folks. And it's a race that is set before us. Now, what are we going to do about it? You see, we're in the last two chapters of Hebrews and we're in the end of the race in Hebrews. We've only got chapter 12 and chapter 13 and we're done. We don't know how much time we have left on this earth. We may only have a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years and we're done. Can I encourage you? Pray earnestly. And be sure in your heart you're doing everything that God would have you to do. Now let's pray.